Good afternoon, and welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists. Since early 2021, we have been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I am Dr. Andy Petrol, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mary Beth Graham. Dr. Graham is a Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is a board-certified internal medicine and infectious disease specialist who joined the faculty at MCW in 2002. Her clinical expertise includes HIV infection and associated complications, infections in immunocompromised individuals, including transplant recipients, influenza treatment and prevention, and orthopedic infections. Some of her administrative responsibilities include serving as the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Frederick Hospital and being Associate Chief for the Division of Infectious Disease. Welcome to Coffee Conversations, Dr. Graham. Thank you, Dr. Petro. So today we're going to be discussing monkeypox. We will cover a number of aspects of the science behind monkeypox. We will talk about what this virus is, how it is spread, and what we can do to prevent and treat it. I'll encourage all of you watching to drop any questions you may have into the chat, um, uh, and we will uh, look at as many of those questions and address them uh, as much as possible today after we review some of the basics um, in our discussion here. So Dr. Grand, you and I have actually had a long experience with monkeypox. Uh, monkeypox has been in the news a lot this year, but our history with it goes back almost 20 years. Um, so uh, I was a internal medicine resident in 2003 here at uh, Frater Hospital, and I admitted one of the first hospitalized patients uh, with monkeypox at that time, and you became one of the primary investigators of the CDC's investigation into the Midwestern uh, monkeypox outbreak of more than 70 cases at that time. So you and I are pretty well suited to have this uh, conversation today. So let's, let's get started then. So Dr. Graham, do you wanna just talk about what is the monkeypox uh, virus uh, and what do we know about it uh, so far? So monkeypox, just so that people understand, it's not related to chickenpox. So there's this, mis there's this misconception because it ends with pox, they're related. So monkeypox is an orthopox virus. It's related to smallpox virus. It's also related to some other viruses. You may hear about cowpox. You may hear about vaccinia virus that actually a number of researchers use in their lab. So they're all in that big group called orthopox viruses, whereas chickenpox is a herpes group virus. So one of the main differences is herpes group viruses, once you're exposed to them, they're in you forever. The orthopox viruses, people can become infected, but they don't stay in somebody forever. So they're not one of those viruses that can recrudesce and recur over and over again. Um, monkeypox is interesting because when it first showed up, it was in the late 1950s. It was in a research lab in Africa, and they had a colony of, um, I think it was macaques, that developed a pox-like illness, and they thought it was smallpox, but when they further investigated, it was different than smallpox, and therefore they named it monkeypox. And for the most part, it was known as something that occurred. They didn't 
really think about human spread until 19 until the 1970s when the first human case of monkeypox occurred in Africa. And if you Google monkeypox, probably the first picture you'll get is this nine-year-old boy who's just covered in lesions from head to foot. And it was the first case of human monkeypox. Since that time, we know that monkeypox is what we would refer to as an endemic virus in Africa, meaning it's there, it can spread. They really don't know the natural host of the virus, whereas with a lot of other viruses like influenza, we know the host can be swine or avian birds, et cetera. They think monkeypox probably is in some of the rodent populations in Africa. Um, and what we know about monkeypox today in Africa, there are two different types, um, what they call clades of monkeypox. So there's a Congo Basin uh, monkeypox, which is much more severe, which is actually what that young boy had, um, which can spread to the entire body, has a much higher morbidity mortality rate. Um, and then there's the West African monkeypox, which is what we had in 2003. And it's also what is spreading worldwide at this point in time. It seems to be different in that the mortality is different. Um, and, and I will say this, this, even though we do have central, um, even though we have West African monkeypox spreading right now, it looks very different than what we saw in 2003. And that actually, they found that there are different lineages of that virus and what's spreading now is actually different than what we had back in 2003. Right, so monkeypox is fascinating in that way, isn't it? Like oh, it yeah. can exist in all these different animals and it's presented itself differently. Kind of each time it's come up as a, as a larger um, epidemic outside of kind of its um, uh, previously known endemic areas. So that's pretty fascinating. Well, actually you know one, of the things, one of the things that's interesting is they think potentially the reason that the number of cases over the last several years were increasing in Africa was because of the discontinuation of smallpox vaccination. So smallpox vaccination, which used to be a universal vaccine for everybody, um, discontinued in the United States back in, I think it was in the 1970s, but was quit. they quit it worldwide in the 1980s. It's been since then, they've been seeing increasing numbers of cases, probably because people aren't getting vaccinated. So that endemic source of it has a chance and has people who aren't immune that it can infect. Yeah. Well, so you jumped ahead a little bit to something we're going to talk about, <laughs> but why don't we, so now you've, you've given away that there's a vaccine, but I think people probably do that, but we'll get into the vaccine in, in a little bit. Why don't we talk a little bit about um, you want to spend just a, a couple minutes talking about the outbreak that we had here in the Midwest in 2003 for a little bit of a contrast, which we'll talk about in a minute to this year's outbreak? So, so what was interesting in 2003 is there was a very similar epidemiologic link between all those cases. And it was the majority of people were either somebody who owned a prairie dog or worked in a pet shop where prairie dogs were being sold or were in veterinary clinics where sick prairie dogs were being taken care of. And, and that was essentially the kind of the link between all of those. Uh, 
They believe what happened in that scenario was that prairie dogs that were being collected to be sold at swap meets to people because they were cute little animals that people liked as what they called pocket pets were housed next to a sick animal from Africa. The, the thought is that it was a Gambian rat. Um, I will say that thought came from me because I knew the distributors and they talked about a sick Gambian rat at this one place. And so that's where that legend came from. That, or that Gambian rat was never recovered. So we don't know if it had monkeypox. Um, but that was the thought because all of the animals that were near that, the prairie dogs that were in cages near that, and, and they actually weren't caged together. They were in near cages. It was the vast majority of the lots of those animals that were caged near that animal that got sick. And then the first cases were at Marshfield Clinic. Um, there were um, a couple of pathologists there who actually did additional studies on biopsies for people and discovered this virus um, and contacted the CDC. And then the next cluster occurred in Milwaukee. Uh, and those are the number of patients that we saw. In the Midwest states, I think there were a total of 70 plus cases in the Midwest and over 40 of them were in, in the Milwaukee, Southeastern Wisconsin area. Right, so that was a great summary. Um, so relatively small outbreak um, about 20 years ago here, and again, mainly spread directly from these animals to, to their owners or people who worked with them. In contrast, this year around the world, we've had about 70,000 cases of monkeypox, including about 27,000 uh, in, in the U.S. here. You want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, this year's outbreak and how it's a lot different than that in, in the way that it seems to uh, be spread. So what we're seeing now, and again, there was kind of a hint that this might be coming because in, two, in 2021, there were a couple of cases of what we called imported monkeypox, people who had traveled to Nigeria and then came back and were diagnosed with monkeypox. One was in Texas and one was in Maryland. Um, and then the questions had come up, well, you know, where potentially could they have, you know, picked up this virus? Um, the first cluster, like big cluster, I believe in Spain and also in Belgium, there were large clusters where we found out about individuals who were being tested positive, and it was primarily at gatherings, um, at raves. I'll be honest, I had to Google exactly what a rave is. <laughs> so, um, so you look that up, and so they were you know, at, at these gatherings with large numbers of individuals and seeing spread what appeared to be person to person. And then the cases started showing up here, initially with people who were returning, some people who had been in England, because there was also the beginning, at the beginning of what we saw for the spike of cases. There were a number of cases in the UK, um, but then spreading throughout here in the United States and primarily um, finding out as we looked at it, Predominantly in men who have sex with men, not exclusively. There have been women who've been infected. There have been children who have been infected. But the predominant, the largest number of individuals who've been infected are men who have sex with men, which, which made people seem to think erroneously that this is a sexually transmitted infection. I, I mean, monkeypox, can, anybody can get monkeypox. And it's just coming in contact with an infected source that is the risk factor. So again, back in 2003, it was in contact with these, you know, infected animals, you know, at this point in time, it's being spread person to person. And, and in Africa, they knew previously, 
that it could spread person to person. And there were questions about whether it could be spread sexually. Um, I, I think the thing with this outbreak that makes it, that has led to it being a little bit more transmissible is that in the early stages with monkeypox, it can be really silent. So what, what we saw again back in 2003, which looked different, is most of our patients had a sore throat, had swollen lymph nodes, um, and then they would get a rash. So they would have you know fevers, sore throat, lymph nodes, and then the rash would show up. In this outbreak, what we're seeing is that a number of people, but not everybody, probably 80, 85% of people have what they call a prodrome where they'll have a fever and malaise, but we're not seeing that lymph adenopathy, those, those swollen lymph nodes or the sore throat. I mean, back in 2003, we could diagnose monkeypox by doing throat swabs on people who had the sore throats. Um, so it's a little different. And when the lesions start, they can be very, I mean, they're asymptomatic. So when they're small, they don't cause symptoms. And it's not until the lesions get larger that then we'll have patients presenting with symptoms. And especially when they're in the genital area or in the oral area, as they get larger, they can be um, you know, very, very painful um, and cause a lot of issues. But from the time that somebody develops those initial prodrome, even before the rash starts, but when the rash is, um, before it's even symptomatic with the rash, you can spread the virus. So there's a time frame where people could be infected, have no idea that they are, and then it could be spread person to person. So I think that's what led to the very quick uptake in the number of cases that we were seeing. But then I also think that as, you know, the word got out and people would look at this and determine about risk factors for this. That also probably accounts where people modified behavior before we had other options available to then see the cases go down almost as quickly too, because it was a quick peak up and it was a relatively, you know, fairly good to see peak going down. So let's maybe just review that for a second. So we talked about how there have been about 27, 28,000 cases in the U.S. so far. Um, and as you described, somewhere between 90 and 95% of those were in men and the rest being in women. We know that there are about 80 cases so far um, in children under age 15, um, including some infants um, who um, got it from uh, one of their parents. Um, so, and we also know that there have been at, at least uh, what I found most recently was 17 cases in uh, people who are pregnant. Um, in that, in those cases, there were no um, serious illnesses or, or, or death or anything. So, um, I think uh, this is, like you said, this is interesting and how different it is from prior outbreaks. Um, so why don't we talk about uh, what we expect? You hinted at a lot of the symptoms, but what would you say to someone uh, if they ask, like, what are the usual symptoms and the course of monkeypox in a person? So the usual course is, again, some type of uh, an initial, we call it a prodrome, but it's most people fever malaise. So fever fatigue malaise has been the most common with this current outbreak then followed by the appearance of lesions. But usually the lesions 
for many of the of the men who've had them, especially in the genital area, they may not recognize them because, well, it's difficult to see and when they're small, you don't feel them um, until they get larger. Then when the lesions are in those sensitive parts of the body, it can cause pain. Usually the lesions on other parts of the body, on the skin, et cetera, aren't particularly painful. Um, but when they're in the mucous membranes um, and in the genital area, they can be quite painful. They go through stages from what they call an initial flat all the way up to what's referred to as a pustule. Then those lesions will crust over. And finally, the crust fall off, leaving normal skin underneath. And somebody is considered infectious until the crust is totally off and there's normal skin underneath. And that time frame can take up to three to four weeks from the, from the beginning of those symptoms up until that crust is totally off and there's normal skin underneath, which again, as you look at it during that time, if somebody were to come in contact with that lesion, or even with the crust, let's say we don't want people peeling them off, but even underneath there, there's infectious virus that's there. So if you think about it too, in terms of how it can be spread, skin to skin contact is probably the most important, but with the lesions, especially as they get a little bit older, and then you've got some of the, the crust lesions, et cetera, bedding. Um, so we think about, you know, like if you share a bed with somebody or um, share certain, you know, if, if you've got oral lesions, you share eating utensils. If you share, again, not been washed, washing will get rid of it. So that's, that's good. Um, but again, unwashed bedding, et cetera, is thought to be potentially a, a big, you know, potential way that it could spread, you know, to, to other individuals. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, in contrast to something like COVID, where we were asking people to stay home for somewhere between five and 10 days, now with monkeypox, we've had to ask people to um, isolate themselves for sometimes three or more weeks. So that's quite a big ask um, for us to do. So just to recap that, so for most patients, you're, you've said that um, it will be a relatively long illness that will um, resolve itself. Um, but you know, as we've learned so far, there have been at least in, in the US, um, somewhere between 60 and 100 patients who were hospitalized, probably more, this is just what was captured um, most recently by CDC, um, with severe cases of, of monkeypox. Um, do you wanna talk about, um, as someone who takes care of a lot of people with compromised immune systems, do you wanna talk about um, you know, how that might happen and uh, you know, what you might expect in an immunocompromised uh, uh, person? So, it, it, the immune system is an amazing thing and um, protects us from a lot of the different types of infectious diseases. When we're talking about viral illnesses for those individuals who don't have good, what we refer to as cell mediated immunity. So not the type of cells. So if you, if you get a cut and it gets red around there, that's referred to as innate immunity, that those are different types of cells. When we talk about that cell-mediated immunity, those are people who would be more prone, um, like somebody with, with advanced HIV, their T-cell counts are quite low. Some people who are on chemotherapeutic agents that can knock down all their cell counts. Um, solid organ transplant patients could essentially, the drugs that they're on to prevent rejection of their organ will specifically target that cell-mediated immunity 
the reason it does is because you have to dampen that so that you don't reject the organ. So there's a reason behind why we give people immunosuppressive medications after a solid organ transplant, usually much higher levels early on in transplant. It goes, it gets less as they go on. Um, but for those who have those defects or that their cell-mediated immunity may not be as robust, and, and just as an aside, as you age, your cell-mediated immune system, well, all of your immune system gets tired. They, they call it a senescent immune system, and um, which is kind of sad. Um, that's why we give higher dose flu vaccine to older individuals, just because their immune system doesn't respond as well to the vaccine. You need to goose it more than what you did before. So in those people who are immunocompromised, whereas you know, if somebody else were to get monkeypox, again, with anybody, regardless of the immune system, especially when it's in those sensitive areas, in those mucosal membrane areas, um, in the mouth or in the genital area um, or in the rectal area, that can, for anybody, that could be extreme, very, very painful. What we've read and seen, though, is in some patients who have really severe immune suppression, that the lesions basically just they keep coming up. And, and this is something that's also different than what we saw in 2003. The, the previous dogma for monkeypox is that all the lesions come up, they're at the same stage of development, they're there, and then they essentially go away at the same stage. And with what we're seeing now, um, we've seen patients who have lesions and then new lesions pop up, especially those who are, are very immune suppressed and will develop them in waves, which is not the classic of what we read or knew about from textbooks with regards to smallpox and monkeypox prior to this. Um, and it's made it difficult because as we look at it, it's their immune system isn't able to fight it. So what do we have available potentially to treat the virus? And it, that's that's a whole other new bag, you know, bag of tricks that we had to come up with, that the government had to come up with um, and worldwide to look at this because this isn't something historically, we didn't have to treat anybody back in 2003 and nobody died back in 2003. Um, in Africa, essentially with resource limitation, even though with a Congo Basin um, clade, what they see is about maybe, um, you know, they, they report maybe even up to 10% of people who get that can die from that. Um, again, much less with the, with the West African, but usually not giving medications for it. So this is a whole new era with regards to meds and prevention that we're moving into. Sure. So this is probably a good transition point. So to talk about that. Um, so just to like put a little recap on that, um, you mentioned deaths. What we know so far in the U.S. Uh, from a recent report from CDC is that um, we think that a, about five people have died as a direct result from monkeypox, um, and another about 20 uh, or so patients have died during an acute monkeypox infection where it is uh, either a contributing cause or it hasn't been worked out yet, like what was the main um, what was the main cause or hasn't been reported yet. Um, so. Uh, certainly a fair number of people have died, but in, in the scheme of things um, out of the you know, 28,000 cases, that's certainly a relatively low rate. So why don't we talk about um, the treatments that are now available um, or, or uh, for people who have monkeypox and when we might use them and when we might not use them. 
So for the vast majority of people, um, still treatment isn't necessary. Again, it's it's something that it's going to take its course. Um, the CDC does recommend that for immunocompromised individuals where they might have difficulty controlling the virus, that they should um, be considered for treatment or those who have lesions. And again, in, in the genital area or other mucosal membranes that could be very sensitive. And, and for some individuals who've had significant lesions, like in the rectal area or um, in the other parts of the genital area, it can it can essentially cause people to have difficulty with regards to having bowel movements or being able to urinate. Um, so for those individuals, it's been recommended that if again, significant symptoms, pain control is always the biggest part of it. So understanding that this can be painful and working with your patients on pain control, but for those immunocompromised patients um, to, or for those with fairly, fairly significant infection, um, to consider using an oral medication, well, it's actually available oral or, or IV, um, called tecaviramat. It is a drug that will, um, essentially it can be used for the orthopox viruses. It has been available through an emergency use authorization through the CDC. So we have to go through them in order to get supply. Um, it is a pill twice a day, um, for, I'm having a brain fart right now. Sorry, 14 I think days. 14 days. 14 days. <laughs> just, <laughs> um, we, you know, that, that we will give to people. Uh, we have had scenarios where we needed to give the IV formulation. There are other antivirals which can potentially be used against monkeypox. Um, one of them is a, is a drug that we've used in the past for cytomegalovirus called sedafavir. Um, and that for inpatients could be given. There's another oral medication called Brinsadafavir, which was approved by the FDA specifically for smallpox, but it wasn't released in any of the, um, it wasn't released for treatment. Essentially a lot of the, the main drug that was released for treatment was Tecaviramat. And I think we're gonna learn a lot about this drug um, down the line with regards to trying to look at you know individuals with regards to the normal course of infection and recovery versus those individuals who receive the drug um it is, it's my hope that cdc because we had to get the drug through them and we did follow-ups with them that they'll be putting together interesting information to figure out you know how well did this drug work what other information do we know um you know about this medication Great. So just to recap that, most, the vast majority of people who have gotten monkeypox and who, who will get it don't need um, any specific treatment other than maybe something to help with pain relief. But those that either have severe cases or who have immunocompromised um, from a number of conditions <clears throat> might need and benefit from um, this either oral um, or IV medication that's available. So um, we're, uh, it, you know, we're able to do things for a lot of our patients um, who uh, may, may, get, may get monkeypox. So we talked about treating it after the fact. Why don't we shift a little bit to talk about um, how we can prevent uh, monkeypox. Um, mainly, we talked a little bit about uh, how it's spread already. And you mentioned, you know, things like people isolating themselves in their own space within a house or, um, you know, 
that's keeping people out of uh, contact with bed sheets or you know other kind, kinds of fabric that people may share, like a couch, um, while they're actively infected. Um, so we know about that um, already a little bit. Why don't we talk about the vaccine that's available, um, and uh, you can talk about uh, you know who it's recommended for and and what we know about the vaccine and the vaccine's so, origins. Yeah, so there there are essentially two vaccines out there that potentially could be used. One's called ACAM two thousand, and the other one is called Genios. Um, they are both made from that vaccinia virus. So the vaccinia virus is another orthopox virus, which is related to smallpox and to monkeypox. Um, it is commonly used in research laboratories for certain types of studies. It's actually been used as what they call a, um, a viral vector. It's, it's, a, it's a big DNA virus that people can splice things into and, 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 some research studies with hematology oncology patients, they actually use vaccinia virus for some of the therapies that they've used. Um, but essentially, for those of us of a certain age um, who received the smallpox vaccine as children, we have the badge of honor over on our arms. Um, and the ACAM 2000 essentially they chose not to use that as the primary vaccine to distribute throughout the United States because it involves what they refer to as a take. So it will cause that blistering lesion on the arm where the vaccine is put on. And then essentially for the next couple of weeks, it will come and then the scab will fall off and you're left with that. Um, the Genios vaccine is a, it's a live virus, but non-replicating, which which seems kind of funky, but it, it's alive, but it can't do anything. So it's just kind of like, hey, I'm here, but you know, I, I can't grow. Um, and it's a non-replicating live virus um, vaccine originally looked at for both uh, smallpox, potentially monkeypox. It was primarily looked at for monkeypox. Most of the data that we have on it is based on antibody responses that people get. So if they get the Genios vaccine and then they look at vaccine titers before and after um, getting the vaccine, it's, it, it causes a really robust immune response and a really nice high antibody titer. And the theory is that those antibodies that you develop after the vaccine then would be protective. Uh, the, the key point is, is that with regards to studies looking at it specifically to prevent monkeypox, um, we're, it's inferred that there will be that protection. And the thing I guess I'm most excited about is that knowing about this vaccine, again, we've been seeing increasing numbers in Africa where the virus has been endemic, but really not a whole lot of push to start revaccinating individuals, um, especially in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where there's some uh, where the more severe monkeypox exists with higher death rates. So my hope is, is that this will lead to more universal vaccination, especially in areas where this is endemic, so in Africa. Um, but if you're looking at, if you're looking here in the United States, the recommendations for the vaccine right now are definitely driven more by demographics and risk factors. So the current risk factors um, for the vaccine are a known contact. So again, in, before you have symptoms within 14 days, if you've had known contact or been in contact or in a venue where you know monkeypox is spreading, that it would be beneficial to get the vaccine. Um, the Genios, it's a two-dose series, the first shot and then the second shot um, about 28 days later. 
One of the others uh, recommendations is for people with multiple sex partners. Most of the recommendations have been focused on men who have sex with men, but, um, and as we look at it, our transgender individuals, et cetera, that potentially could get it. But anybody with multiple sex partners, you know, you would have to say is, is potentially at risk um, for this. So there is a limited supply in the United States of the vaccine. It can be given one of two ways, either just like a shot in the arm, which is referred to as subcutaneous, or they can use about one fifth of the dose to inject right underneath the skin that's referred to as intradermal. And in places where there's been really a fair amount of monkeypox, so if you look at the state of New York, if you look in Illinois, where there have been large number of cases, they are giving the vaccine, I think, predominantly by an intradermal so that they can vaccinate a larger group of people rather than subcutaneous route. Um, both are efficacious with regards to the antibody production that somebody gets. Um, we have had some people that get the intradermal and it can be itchy and it's on your forearm and you can see where it's at. And that people sometimes don't like that, especially during the summer when your arms are open as we move into the fall, people probably won't care if it's underneath their sleeves um, to see that. But that vaccine, um, again, it's been highly recommended, especially for individuals who have multiple sex partners. So it's it's not just if you have sex with, if you are, if you are stable in a relationship and don't have multiple sex partners, you're really not at risk. It's, again, the issue is it's mostly two or more sex partners within the last, um, what's recommended is within the last 14 days, um, we've looked with our patients, not only multiple sex partners, but recent acquisition of some other type of sexually transmitted infection, gonorrhea, chlamydia, you know, syphilis, something else like that, to then discuss with our patients, you know, in terms of, you know, are you at risk? What can we do? You know, what do you, who do you have sex with? Let's, let's just talk about it. And would you fit the demographic so that we think that you would benefit from this vaccine and get it? Sure. Great. Um, and certainly there have been, uh, I think the last time I checked, there's, well, there's, I think six to 700,000 people um, who've had the vaccine in the U.S. Um, so related to that, we can, I think, move on to talk about like what is happening right now? What's the current state of uh, monkeypox? in Wisconsin and in the US. Um, I mean, I can start off by saying uh, at the peak of the uh, kind of this year's monkeypox outbreak, there was in the US as a whole about 500 cases per day being diagnosed. And uh, as of uh, end of October here, there was something more like 30 cases per day in the US. So really quite a tremendous decrease um, and likely a response both to um, people understanding how the, the virus is transmitted and uh, perhaps altering their activities a bit, but also um, having 700,000 people um, in kind of the uh, target uh, group get vaccinated probably had a, a big impact on that. Um, any other thoughts on kind of where we are um, with, uh, with regard to this year's um, uh, outbreak? I, at least for the state of Wisconsin, we've been fairly stagnant with the number of cases in the state of Wisconsin for the um, for a while. Um, but I don't think that means we need to let our guard down because it's probably multifactorial why the number of cases went down in terms of people, you know, being concerned, you know, taking other measures with regards to sexual activity, et cetera. 
Um, and it is something that we need to think about, you know, for the long run, is this a vaccine that we would want to consider um, for all individuals who potentially could be at risk for, um, you know, in that demographic, if you look at it, is this something that I'm routinely going to give to somebody who's 65 and older, you know, like I do the pneumococcal vaccine the answers, um, unless they're having multiple sex partners, <laughs> the answer is no. So again, it's, it's a vaccine that I would think about for certain individuals, because what we don't know about the virus, and you and I talked about this, um, what if the virus becomes endemic here? I mean, we don't know the reservoir of this virus in Africa. So is there a potential that this virus could become endemic in the United States? Um, sure. so, I, like I don't endemic, know. By endemic, let's just put a scenario together. We know that monkeypox virus and a person who has it ongoing can be found in things like their, obviously their skin, and then it that wouldn't be so easy to pass the, the environment. But uh, it also can be found in their saliva and their urine and their stool. So let's picture scenario. Someone's out at a park and they have monkeypox. They wipe their mouth in a napkin and then, you know, they leave it in the trash. And then a squirrel or something goes and, and eats whatever was in the napkin. Um, you know, that would could be a potential way that it could become endemic, meaning uh, in within the domestic, not the wild animals of our area. Uh, uh, so that's that's a possibility. I, I mean, know, it's no theoretically, but it's it definitely there. I totally 100% agree with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one possibility. Of course, there's the possibility that it'll, you know, be quiet again until there's another kind of new source um, from somewhere. Um, it could get into a different population in the U.S. that currently is completely unvaccinated. Um, so obviously, you and I don't know what's going to happen, but there's a lot of interesting uh, possibilities. So um, I think that was a great discussion. Um, we'll see if there are any questions that people want to put in the in the chat right now to our um, to our lovely staff members, Dr. Graham. Just well, we'll do one more minute or so if people are thinking of our questions. Do you want to say anything about any other? current uh, infectious diseases of the season, like, I don't know, flu or COVID or RSV, just for a little bit of information for a minute or so? So we are definitely in the triple-demic. Um, the media has given it that name, so I will just, you know, confirm that. The number of flu cases across the United States are rapidly exploding. I mean, Wisconsin still is in like the lowish stage, um, but parts of the South uh, Southeast are in high transmission mode with influenza cases and hospitalizations. We've had a number of hospitalizations already within Freighter Health. Um, RSV is all over the media because it is just huge numbers of cases that we're seeing in children. Um, but it's also a disease that can affect more immunocompromised adults. So especially our hemonc patients and our bone marrow transplant patients, we can see that. I mean, one of the theories is for the last couple of years with people either isolating or masking, et cetera, um, their immune systems just weren't exposed to a number of different things. And now that most of the mitigation steps um, I mean, very few people are wearing masks when they go out and going into large crowds, et cetera, and kids are all back in school. And with that decrease in the immunity that somebody may have gotten year to year by just being exposed to things, 
maybe that's why it's exploding. Um, so, and then COVID remains our community transmission rates for the state of Wisconsin still remain in the high, substantial to high region. Luckily, hospitalizations, not so much. Um, those have remained down, but we still have fairly um, high substantial transmission. So I am encouraging everybody, the way I the way I do it is, if you are at risk for severe complications from a respiratory viral illness, please take additional steps like masking, please get vaccinated. So I'm not telling everybody in the world to put on a mask and I'm not gonna argue with people who don't wanna get the vaccine, but if you are a person who is at high risk of complications, um, from these, please take care of yourself and do it for yourself. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm just checking to see if we have any, if we've inspired any questions. It seems like we've done such a great job outlining uh, the history <laughs> and the present day monkeypox that um, there aren't any more questions. I think we did a, a nice job covering really just about everything people might want to know. So. I think we'll probably um, leave it there. So um, coming back here, um, Dr. Graham, thank you so much for sharing your um, expertise um, with us today. And um, we will encourage people to, if they have any follow-up questions or have any topics they wanna see at future Coffee Conversations, you can drop an email at um, conversations at mcw.edu. And we'll, of course, invite everyone to come back next month for the next edition of uh, Coffee Conversations. So thanks very much, Dr. Graham. Thank you. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.